Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to the Prospects podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we're going to be talking to the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Schiller on what he calls narrative economics. That is the way that stories help shape our economy. First, though, I'm joined by my colleague Samir Rahim. Um, Samir, I think it's true to say, isn't it, with so much politics and constitutional crisis going on in Westminster here, we, we kind of forget about the economy a bit, don't we? Yes, it seems so. And I wonder what the the state of the world economy is uh, right now. How do you see it? Um, well, I'm, I'm not giving it the attention that perhaps I should <laughs> because of all that politics. But it's true to say that growth has slowed uh, worldwide. Um, and, you know, for example, the Federal Reserve is now cutting interest rates rather than talking about raising them anymore. Um, and whereas not long ago, like the early signs of this slowdown were being put down to special factors, US trade war, something going on with car emission standards. You know, there's always special reasons why things might be slowing. But I think it looks a little bit more general maybe now. And there's other uncertainties in there. We saw a spike after those attacks on the Saudi oil refineries in the oil price only this week. So um, it's not a catastrophe. We're not on the edge of a 2008 crash but it does look like it's a period of slower growth and what about in britain are we uh, are we heading towards the sunlit uplands that were promised no we're not um britain's growth has slowed um and we know that a lot of investment has been held right back um living standards actually are going up a bit which they haven't been for a while but um like the economy does look a bit dicey and of course this brings us back to the politics we know what that is companies are saying we're gonna see where brexit comes out before we decide if to make that investment or not and is it going to be the case that there might be a sort of false dawn you know if, if there is a brexit deal companies have certainty and then they'll start investing again and there might be a sort of little boost to the economy even though in the long term uh, and as we've explained in the magazine many times brexit will probably do quite a lot of damage i think there would be a pickup because if lots of people are holding back on investment um and certainly this might be you know if a foreign firm is looking at expanding a car plant or something they'd certainly want to know 
what's going on with Brexit before they invested something. But any company anywhere that just wants to know if it's all looking a bit dicky, if there's suddenly, after all this talk of no deal, a deal after all, there'll be a collective sigh of relief and those investments will go ahead. People will have certainty and the Brexit related slowdown we've seen in the first or second quarter of this year, I think, would then be reversed. In 10 years time, it wouldn't be a pickup maybe that people would remember. It'd be a passing thing, but it might be enough to um, avert a sinking in this sluggish world economy. So like any narrative, it all depends on when you start the story and when you end the story. (laughs) So looking at it across a sort of five year period is often very different looking at a sort of 50 year period. So some of the Brexiteers might say, well, we'll have a 10 year, you know, slowdown or whatever. But then after then, will really will will go up the Nike tick Boris Johnson talks about and we know that um Jacob Rees-Mogg famously did talk about um you know the 50-year picture which might sound rather a long time to a lot of people I mean I think you know if there's a Brexit deal like possibly growth will be lower than it would have been probably you know in over a five or ten year period and it's a bit of a fool's game to guess too far beyond that but if we go out with no deal in a month or two, I think the effects will be quite pronounced for quite a long time. First of all, because some sectors, including cars, in the first instance face tariffs. Secondly, there's sort of particular pockets of trade, like with Ireland, that we know are going to be complicated. Um, And um, thirdly, there'll just be a general sense that people still don't know where they stand because no deal is just the start of lots and lots of dealing so this whole uncertainty thing then rolls on and on and on for as far as the eye can see and I think that yeah, if you look back at that in certainly in 10 years time you'll still see it as a real hit. So what can we do about it are there any particular solutions apart from just stopping Brexit or? Well, uh, I think there are things because the government has got its overdraft down. You remember after the last crisis, the government spent a lot of money, printed a lot of money, but quite soon we were into austerity, which a lot of people, including me, had a lot of worries about. Um, But the one thing about having a smaller overdraft now is you've at least got the capacity to make your overdraft bigger again if uh, we have a recession. So I think there are some things will be um, able to do. But before we get on to having the right cure or finding the right cure, uh, we probably need to make sure we've got the right diagnosis, the right understanding. Are we really any further along to answering the Queen's famous question on visiting the LSE in 2008? Why did nobody see it coming? Well, there's one man with a better track record than most in seeing busts coming. And that's the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Schiller, who is now suggesting in a new book that economists might do well to obsess a little less with their charts and equations and rediscover the art of storytelling instead. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Robert Scheller, thank you so much for uh, coming into prospect podcast um very welcome uh, to you tell us a little bit about your idea about narrative and economics what is what has narrative got to do with economics well most economists don't think it has anything to do with economics the standard paradigm today is most commonly uh, is that economic decisions are rational calculated consistent people have a utility function doesn't change through time and uh, they know what they want uh, the, ne- the narrative economics that I am defining uh, takes a different view of human nature. People are sometimes like that, but you know, they don't get around. How many times have you thought about how much you should save for retirement? And do you have a view in your mind uh, that what percent I should save at various ages? Probably not. And can you remember a dinner conversation about such an abstract topic? They don't talk about it. In fact, the dinner conversation that you hear will be stories about somebody who made a lot of money or lost a lot of money or uh, was in poverty now. Those are contagious. And ultimately, people make their saving decisions based on these stories. So we have to study the stories if we want really to have a full understanding of economic fluctuations. Does that mean... Um that you think an awful lot of economics that's been done is wrong or just misleading? Well, I, I like economics, and I, li- I like the models that are fu- fully rational as beginnings of thought. Uh, but I, I just think that there's something fundamental about uh, the stories that people were telling, and particularly with regard to big events like Brexit <laughs> or... Uh, immigration policy in many countries, uh, or uh, about economic fluctuations. What, was, what, what caused the Great Depression? In fact, you know, that's a story that will stop a lot of people in their tracks. I don't know, people will say, I don't know what, what caused it. The stock market crash caused it of 1929. But that, what caused the stock market crash of 1929? Then they'll say, well, maybe the Federal Reserve, the central bank, did it because there, there isn't a role in most people's thinking for some change in psychology that ultimately did it. It's a little bit hard to be precise. And that economists like to be precise, uh, and they don't like to be quoting hearsay. That, that seems unprofessional. 
And up until now, we haven't really had good ways of measuring narratives, except that we would quote, I heard the other day, such and such. And it just offends their, their sense of professionalism. To inter they assume that the narratives are just the outcome of economic processes, and they don't feed back in to change the processes. You get these stories sometimes, don't you, where someone's done a paper that looks at what is the best predictor of a recession, and it might be how often the word recession features in a newspaper. Right. In other words, that something in the mood has, has changed, or maybe a story that people have got about where the country's going. Mood changes are typically a surprise to economists. Uh, and uh, we're talking about mood of a whole nation or of, of the whole world. The whole world goes into mood changes. And they, they, don't, they don't seem to recognize there's any way to get insights into these changes. So they don't talk about They have confidence indexes, which was one important development more than a half century ago. But why confidence is going up and down is too uh, mushy a topic for them. But I think if you look at big events, uh, it kind of jumps out at you that the origin of these events is involved with some stories that for example, stories of immigrants uh, defiling our culture or committing crimes. or Those stories are lively, and they're not necessarily any truth to them. You were talking earlier about what happened in the Great Depression, and it was very striking for me when um, we had a sort of, you know, the, the Great Crash of 2007-8, when, when there was a run on the banks in this country, and we had lines around the block of people wanting to take their money out of Northern Rock. And in a way, as an individual, your narrative says, my money's there, it's under risk, I want to take it out. But collectively, um, that's the worst possible thing that you could be doing. So and is, there, is there a sort of conflict between like an individual story in the way they look at the world and then obviously you know, the grand narrative that, um, that, that governments need to think about? Well, I think it is important that governments do think about <laughs> these narratives. And I think that your government came through with Northern Rock. They immediately took action to raise the uh, limit on how much would be insured. Ex post, they just increased the insurance. Uh, and so that stopped it. Uh, they knew that there was still a collective memory of bank runs, although the last bank run in Britain, I think, was in 1866. Uh, it could come back, because th these stories are... Uh, it would come back like a new epidemic of fear. And the way that takes hold is through talk, right? That's how you, uh, uh, it's both talk in the news media, but more importantly, it's talk among friends. And uh, because they, they, people tend to respond to one-on-one -on -one communications. We don't observe the one-on-one -on -one communication, which makes it difficult. But I think uh, we're getting closer to it with digitized text uh, and ability to search uh, with uh, natural language processing so that we can actually uh, get something that's more hard evidence about what people are talking about. Does this mean something a bit odd in terms of economic policy? <laughs> Does it mean that what you actually want in a leader uh, might be someone who can spin a good yarn? You know, so that like to give a more positive example, it might be Franklin Roosevelt saying the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And now I'm here, so you don't need to be fearful anymore. To give 
possibly a more controversial example. It could be Donald Trump like boasting about the uh, Wall Street going through the roof or Boris Johnson saying, as he has done this week, uh, what this country needs is to put some tiger in its tank, whatever that means. <laughs> well, you give great examples. Uh, I've had the same examples on my mind. So uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was uh, inaugurated in uh, early 1933 amidst a banking crisis. Uh, the, he had to shut the banking system down. But the, uh, the economy started to recover dramatically at that point. So I think that his pep talk did help, but it wasn't able to counter the power of other narratives that were, and the depression ran on until World War II. Um, but I, I think of the, these events as fundamentally tied to those narratives. After World War II, people thought, well, we're going to go right back into a depression. We don't have Franklin Roosevelt anymore mm. <laughs> at that point. Uh, but it didn't. And I, uh, I don't know that there's uh, any consensus. Why did the economy of the United States boom after, the, after World War II? And in the book, I give some examples of things that were happening. Uh, one thing that I found, this is only part of a constellation of narratives, but there was a narrative during World War II about the victory vacation. Now, this might seem irrelevant, I mean, but let me just tell mm. it. Uh, people started talking about, you know, this war is such a nightmare. We're okay, though. We're going to take a big vacation and celebrate. And, and then so right after the war, the newspapers were filled with ads from vacation spots. Take your victory vacation here. And it was like a party atmosphere after the war. I don't know what it was like in Britain. But you had been suffered damage, and there was no damage in the, in the United States. Uh, and and but so, so somehow that set a new narrative. Uh, and uh, the economists were worried about a return of the Great Depression, but people weren't, so it didn't return. How interesting. And would it mean, I'm trying to get even more controversial now, that if you're uh, in a country like China, where, of course, the government can control um, not only the newspapers, but also, to some extent, social media, that, I mean, you can imagine this becoming a kind of argument for a very sort of authoritarian, top-down form of economic governance, where the good news is going to keep coming. Yeah, that's the worry, especially with modern techno uh, communications technology, if it was, comes under the thumb of some authoritative, authoritarian government. But it could be kind of benign in the sense it could give everyone reason to keep up confidence, and then the confidence self-justifies. Yeah, well, I think there is a role for government officials to try to manage confidence somewhat, but it's a little bit tricky doing that. So I, I was mentioning Northern Rock as an example where they, they did well. And I, I think it's not because of what they learned in graduate school, it's because of their natural <coughs> instincts to uh, uh, imagine what the response might be if they let Northern Rock fail and default on deposits. When you look at a country like Britain at the moment where there's a big argument going on about, in a sense, what the, the country's story and what the country's account of itself is, um, you know, there's going to be effects from leaving the European Union on certain tariff lines. and But lots of those tariff lines are actually quite low. Yeah. And you might adjust to them. But if we have a very different sense of ourselves, a different sort of country that has less connection with, say, continental Europe than with the United States or other parts of the world... Do you think that could turn out to be the real meaning of Brexit? 
Well, that's what caused Brexit, right? Isn't it the? Uh, and uh, uh, it's the same story. I don't understand why the U.S. story isn't more favorable to Britain. It seems like we're British too. We speak English. We're uh, mm. uh, there. There was some sense of differentiation and identity that took hold in the U.S. And they don't think that we are thankful. We should be thankful for our British culture. Mm. The narrative split in uh, 1776 or thereabouts, uh, and it stays. Narratives can stay for a long, long time. So, sorry, do you mean that, that, that mainstream British nationalism is sceptical of America, or do you see it as fawning towards America these days? Uh, I don't know that I would say fawning. Uh, uh, I, but does it want to embrace America, or does it want to push America away? I, I don't know. <laughs> what My instinct would be to uh, talk about the common culture of our two countries. Mm. That sounds positive. I think we we do have, and we can bring in Hong Kong and other places that also share in this common culture. It's interesting, isn't it? You were talking about uh, immigration earlier, and and during the Brexit referendum, it, I think it was attributed to the then Chancellor George Osborne. Um, he said, "Well, no one's no one's going to vote for Brexit because you know no one's going to vote to be poorer just because a Polish person has moved next door to them." Um, and maybe despite economists. Many, if not most economists in this country saying that Brexit will make people poorer, um, they did in fact vote for it. But maybe it's, it's, it's uh, again, we're talking about the individual. So maybe as an individual, you feel like someone from another country is coming to take your job. Uh, that perception is there, whether that's true or not. Um, and, and, and they don't see it on the grander scale that actually overall being closer to Europe instead of trading partnerships is better for better for everyone. So maybe it's a difference between your individual narrative and your collective narrative. Well, narratives have two different sources. One is the media, the, the, the who are in business over spinning narratives, and the other is your friends, uh, and uh, the in in both cases, contagion differs from one narrative to another. But mm -hmm. in the news media. People who who have to get attention, they tend to hype certain things, and that's part of what's happening right now. Is that news media? There's a pol isn't it true in Britain? There's more polarization of newspapers. Yes. So uh, there, there's other things that are happening now that uh, create polarization of narratives, namely the uh, ability of people to find like-minded people on the internet, uh, and you don't have to. You, you can spend a lot of screen time. Uh, this changes the pattern of narrative, but it, it's, I think the uh, narrative as a driver of economies goes back thousands of years, actually. It's not new, but it, it's maybe... What's your, what's your oldest example? Oh, uh, of uh, my oldest example. Well, it's an example. You want an example of a narrative? Of a narrative affecting the uh, economy somewhere. Well, I, I use that the word rumor in Latin mm. means, translated into English, rumor. It's another word for fake news, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they, they were very much aware that rumors uh, caused things. As an example of a narrative that is still being told, that's still economically important, I, I refer you to the Iliad by <laughs> Homer, which... Uh, talks about the uh, tripods of Hephaestus. Do you remember that? 
Maybe you don't I'm remember. I'm afraid that. not, but I should. <laughs> uh, it's bizarre that this was in the Iliad, but he talks about a craftsman who built a tripod that would, uh, would travel on its own and could be programmed to go to the abode of the gods and then come back. Okay. It was a robot mm. talked about there. Uh, so the idea, uh, there were other mentions of robots. In, they didn't use the word robot, uh, uh, but of machines that uh, replace people in the ancient world. I don't want to make too much of it, yeah. but uh, there was some of that. Uh, the idea that machines are replacing jobs and I have to worry is one of my perennial narratives that I talk about in the book. Because, I mean, that is an interesting one, isn't it? Because for 250 years, at least, machines have been replacing certain types of work. Right. But in the last seven, eight years, that's become a real talking point. And it might be something that comes up when you're talking to non-economists at dinner. That's right. It's come up at various mm. times in history. Uh, it, uh, it came up with the Luddites in 1811. Uh, and it came up again in other, uh, other events in the 19th century. Uh, it came up in the Great Depression as technological unemployment, they called it. They had a new name for it. They used to call it labor-saving machines. Uh, it came up in the 1950s when the new word was automation. Uh, and then it came up more recently, and the new word is artificial intelligence. And so do you have a thought as to why it becomes a talking point in, say, the full employment 1950s? Okay. It has, it has something to do with our identity. We tend to identify with our jobs. And these uh, machines are replacing jobs. Uh, so they used to, back in the 19th century, you felt some identity with the rural area where you lived and worked on a farm. But if that job is disappearing, there are, and it has been, or that was a big trend in the 19th century, that you had to move to the city. It was, uh, it was very uh, challenging. Mm. So the disruption that you can either see or feel makes you a... And, and, and worry about the future. So the artificial intelligence narrative is right now profoundly worrying. And it, it doesn't just affect manual labor anymore. It affects uh, college-educated people mm -hmm. uh, and things that you used to pride yourself on. I used to pride myself on how I could... Uh, in the night, I could identify the stars and the constellations and tell you how far away that star is. I was an astronomy nut. But I was totally replaced. Now you can get on your uh, on your <laughs> uh, cell phone. You just hold it up to the sky, and it shows labels of what's what up there. <clears throat> Even in the daytime, I can hold it up and see what's up there. So that was challenging to my ego, although I've long ago given up that, that pretense. So human beings, sort of, when they start to feel redundant, or the roles or the roles that they have assigned for themselves become um, you know, start to disappear. What other narratives around there, maybe more extreme ideologies, they can come to take their place? Is that, would you say that's true? That's right. So one reason why immigration as a narrative has taken hold is that it sounds like something we can stop. And it sounds like the uh, march forward of artificial intelligence is inevitable and can't be stopped. So it, it, for politicians, it often pays to talk about the immigration problem rather than the, rather than the computer problem. 
Can I ask you a final question on um, the nature of what people like you do, you know, science and social science? Um, and uh, scientists are very proud that what they do is disinterested, it's empirical, it's led by the evidence and not by preconceptions. But when you're looking at the rest of society and business and thinking people are being scattered around by stories, do you worry about it in your profession too? Well, this book is an outgrowth of my American Economic Association presidential address. And when I uh, prepared my address, uh, I noticed, I read other ones, and I find that this tends to be an opportunity to criticize your own profession <laughs> in front of it, in their faces. So I decided <laughs> I would do that. And it, it, uh, there is a tendency for academicians in any department to uh, follow fads or trends in their own department. And they want, as you say, they want to be precise and uh, scientific. Uh, but sometimes uh, they don't succeed, and they, it, it, it's, sometimes it's not, uh, it's missing the phenomenon when, when the phenomenon is more human. So Alfred Marshall said over a hundred years ago, economics is not an exact science. But the way it's presented is often as if it were. For example, with the recent talk about the inverted yield curve, where the short rates are uh, above uh, long rates, is taken as uh, a scientific observation, not as something that was maybe ephemeral. It might, might have been uh, tied in with a narrative. It's become a narrative. I, I, uh, the idea it, that this predicts recession. That it predicts, mm. like there is some deep reason why it predicts a recession. And maybe there is. But I suspect it's more transient. Uh, they weren't talking about the inverted yield curve 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, they had very different ways of viewing the economy. They didn't even talk much about the stock market. When you go back to earlier panics, or cri they tended to be about banks. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, they say the Dow Jones Industrial Average was created in the 1890s, which is true. But nobody paid any attention to it, almost nobody except a few professionals, until 19, around 1929. <laughs> and, and then uh, the stock market became a barometer, people thought, of the state of the economy. Why would they think that? But they did. And now you'll see it on the news, if you watch the evening news, every day they say what the market did. You know, so the market went up uh, three points yesterday. What use is that to most people? Why do they have to see that every day? It's because they view that as part of, uh, they still remember the 1929 narrative. That story has become part of our lore. Uh, and it, uh, other, I think the 1987 crash is fading. People, young people have never heard of it. They know 1929 better than 1987. <laughs> stories move with the times I guess um, Robert thank you very much indeed and that's all for this week Robert Schiller's new book is Narrative Economics How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events thank you all very much for listening Rebecca Liu was this week's producer and if you enjoyed the Prospect Podcast then please do leave us a rating and review which really does help We'll see you again next time. Goodbye.